The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
What does it mean to be a Christian? And how do you become a Christian? These questions have been so readily answered so many times that we have homogenized the answers. We've put them in a blender and whizzed them up and added a few other things to make it taste better. And then we say, okay, now I'm a Christian. But at some point, I think it's of great value to stop and say, no, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Not go to a denominational page and say, what do they think it means? Not to listen to a Bible teacher and ask, what do you think it means to be a Christian? Because bottom line, it doesn't matter what I think or what a denomination teaches. It matters what the scriptures say. Our authority is the scripture. It's the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit. So somewhere we have to finally stop and recognize that most are of the world. And then we take Jesus, and we wrap the world around Jesus, and we make him taste better, so he's a little more palatable. He's not quite so straight or so stern. He doesn't, he doesn't seem so formidable. But I have to be honest with you, almost everything I hear today about how to be a Christian is false. It's not true. So, let's answer the question. And Jesus spoke about this when he was talking to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and must take up his cross and must follow me. Well, if someone says that to me, my immediate flesh response is, are you kidding? Are you crazy? Who wants to deny themselves? And who wants to take up an instrument of death and die? And then follow the person who's insisted that you must die? So right at the very beginning, the disciples are hearing words that must have seemed very stern. How did they do this? Well, I'll tell you how they had to do it. They had to leave their fishing business. They had to leave their home. Peter left his wife behind. And they walked the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea and Samaria. And they listened carefully to everything Jesus said and everything he did trying to figure out, okay, is this worth it? 
And of course, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, this man who can heal the sick and raise the dead, this man is the Messiah. And he's going to reestablish the kingdom of David, and he's going to throw the Romans out, and we're on the inside, and we're going to sit at his right hand and his left hand, and we're going to share in the glory of his kingdom. They didn't understand that this walking the dusty roads would finally lead Jesus to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. Had they caught that in the beginning, they might have reconsidered whether or not they wanted to follow Jesus. You know, the term Christian was not used but three times in the scripture, and it was first used in the city of Antioch, and it was used as a a derogatory term, those Christ followers, those Messiah followers. Today we use the word Christian, and we simply mean a Christ follower. But the dusty road is not called for, and the cross is not called for, because he's our risen Lord. And so somehow we think we're going to escape the cross, and we're going to escape the dusty road, and we're not going to have to follow him the way the disciples did. That's past. Wrong. That's not past. That's present. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Say no to your natural instinct. Because the only way you're going to make it out of this world into the next is if you come and follow me. So you're going to have to come and lay your life down with me. He says in verse 26, this is Matthew 16, verse 26, For what does a man profit if he may gain the whole world and may suffer the loss of his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is destined to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his activities. So the activities that you are participating in now will have a profound impact on your eternal destiny. Now, we're not used to hearing that because the modern church, since John Calvin, has homogenized the gospel and said, we're saved by faith alone. Did you know the scriptures do not say that? They don't say, they don't say that we're saved by faith alone. They say that everything that we do counts. Yes, we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary, and that's by faith. But then comes the second part. That's what he did at the cross. What is he doing now? Well, now he's in the heavenly sanctuary, and now he's calling his disciples to obey his direction and lay their life down for the purpose of the gospel. Now, how can we do that? 
How can we afford to do that? Well, there are a couple of passages of Scripture I want to take you to. And today I'm talking about the whole gospel. The whole gospel. What is it? When we come to the book of John, let me read for you again in way of review. I'll begin with verse 29, and this is a literal translation. On the next day, he sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Now, they were acquainted with what the Lamb of God meant. They knew the evening and morning sacrifice. They knew the Day of Atonement sacrifices. This was not new language for them. The Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, takes away the sin of the world. This is he about whom I said, A man is coming after me who has been before me, because he existed before me. And I had not recognized him, but in order that he may be made known to Israel, for this reason I came baptizing with water. In other words, he came baptizing with water to clean them up. They had not heard from the God of heaven, from a prophet of Israel, for 400 years. God had been silent. And now suddenly there is a prophet in the wilderness, and he is proclaiming that Messiah is coming, and crowds are coming out. Thousands of people are coming out into the wilderness where he is to hear his message and to be baptized in the Jordan River. Well, what is he doing? He is preparing the way of the Lord. And how does he prepare it? By calling men and women to repent and to be baptized in water. Now, let me just stop and take a side note quickly. I'm going to identify the package of Peter. What is the package of Peter? It is given in Scripture the essentials of becoming a Christian. But you see, today we've homogenized the gospel and we have our Anglican brothers, our sacramental brothers, and we have our evangelical brothers and sisters, and we have our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. And each one has established their own traditions, their own ways of speaking about Jesus and how to be a Christian. Unfortunately, when you emphasize just one part over everything else, everything else gets out of balance, and it doesn't work anymore. And slowly whether it's the love of my heart, which is Pentecostalism, or Methodism, holiness is the love of my heart also. You see, there was a time when that meant something. But today, it's more of a psychological label 
without any specifics except the traditions of the church. And when you meet the minimum requirements, then you're a good Methodist, not a John Wesley Methodist, or you're a good Pentecostal, but not a Azusa Street Pentecostal. You don't believe. I don't find Pentecostals today at all believe what they believed at Azusa Street. Um, I don't find the Methodist today believing or teaching what John Wesley believed and taught. It's called entropy. It's the third law of physics. Everything is running down. And everything continues to deteriorate until there is a, an input of fresh power and fresh energy to turn that slackening, dying faith. Because everyone wants to know, first of all, do I get my ticket punched that says I'm saved? And what's the minimum I have to do to get my ticket punched? And then I'm on my way. And so if you recognize most churches, all of the work of that church will be done by 20% or less of the members. Most will come in on a Sunday or a Saturday. They'll enjoy the praise and the worship. They may put a few dollars, or they may even pay an honest tithe into the offering plate. And they listen to the preaching, and they, they watch the show, and they leave, and they're the same person they were when they walked in. They're not going to go out and raise the dead. They're not going to go out and heal the sick. They're not going to go out and open their mouth and confess that Jesus is their Lord. They're going to be normal American people. And their behavior, according to Focus on the Family, and the research James Dobson did some years ago, there was no measurable difference between those who said, I'm a Christian, and those who said, I'm not a believer. No difference in the way they spent their money, the television shows they watched, the entertainment they participated in, their long-term goals, no measurable difference. How is that possible? Entropy, running downhill. Now, God bless those precious pastors and churches that call people constantly to come in deeper, but it's a constant battle. And most simply want a little inspiration a little laughter, a little tears, a little strategy for success, encouragement on the journey, and then they're free to go. They're on their way. Well, I want to know from the scriptures, what are we dealing with? What are we dealing with? Verse 32, John witnessed, saying, I have observed the Spirit coming down out of heaven as a dove, and he remained upon him. 
John believed that the Spirit of God was a person. And he observed the dove coming down and lighting on Jesus as a sign or a symbol that this was the Son of God. Verse 33, And I had not recognized him except the one having sent me to baptize with water, that one said to me, Upon whom you may see the Spirit coming down and remaining upon him, this is the one baptizing with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father himself is calling Jesus the baptizer. But in our culture today, who talks about Jesus as the baptizer? We say John the baptizer, but I've never heard anyone say Jesus the baptizer. And yet the Father identifies Jesus as the baptizer. We need to rethink what the Father meant when he said Jesus is the baptizer. Now, I want to take you to this Peter package. We find it in Acts, the second chapter. Acts, the second chapter. If you've not underlined this in your Bible, underline it, mark it, go back to it, pray over it, seek the face of God over it. I'll begin reading with verse 34. Now David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I may make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, beyond a doubt, all the house of Israel must know that God declared him that Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, this is the sermon that Peter gave at Pentecost. Now notice notice what he says, verse 37. Now, having heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brethren, what shall we do? Now I'm going to give you the four steps that Peter says you must take if you are going to be a Christian. Now, some of you are going to be very uncomfortable with these four steps because you've been taught that they're not necessary. Is it any wonder the church has lost its power? Is it any wonder that the church is ineffective in changing the culture that we're a part of, that abortions are rampant, that opiates are in every corner, that young people are smoking dope? Is it any wonder that we have all of the divorce, the robbery, the rape? Is it any wonder that that all of this is happening? What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian will be salt and light. 
A Christian will make a difference. So what does a Christian or what does a person have to do to be a Christian? I'll give you Peter's answer. I would not dare say this, but I'll give you Peter's answer. And if you want to argue, please argue with Peter and not with me. I'm not smart enough for you to argue with. Go argue with Peter. Here's what Peter says. Number one, you must repent. Now, to repent, you must first begin by confession. I heard a person on the radio this morning invite people to come and pray a sinner's prayer. And it went like this. I'm paraphrasing. Lord, I repent of my sins. I acknowledge that I have sinned. And I repent. Please forgive me for my sins. Now, please don't be offended. But that was a useless prayer. In fact, it was worse than useless because it vaccinated any person who went through that prayer against the depths of what God is calling for to be a Christian. I don't want any more vaccinated people against the gospel of Jesus. So the beginning step is to confess every known sin. Every time you went to pornography every time your heart was filled with rage and bitterness and cursing, every time you stole or you lied, every time your conscience pricked you and you knew you were walking against the Most High God, you've got to come before him now and one by one go through these things and repent individually of every one of those things. Now, this will take time. This is not a quick, a quick do-over. This takes time. One of the things that I had to do was actually sit down with paper and pen and begin to make a list of all the things that I could remember that I had done that were against the Lord, that were according to what I wanted and not what he wanted. And then I began going through them one by one. And as I would write down, more things would come to my mind. And I would write those down. More and more things came to my mind, and I'd write those down. And on my face before God, I had to go through those things one by one by one. And I had to confess them before Almighty God. I knew I would have to make restitution in many of the cases. But the first step toward becoming a real Christian is to deal with every known sin. Now, one man said to me this week, I know what I'm doing is not right. I know it's sin. I don't even want to talk about it. It's too embarrassing. I said, well, you're committing that sin because you want to. 
it's your choice. He said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do it. I said, come on, get real with me. You sin because you want to sin. You want what you want. And so you make the choice, and you turn against Jesus, and you pretend you're Jesus. And so you do what you want. You go where you want to go. You say what you want to say. You act in the way you want to act. We're not forced by our hands or our feet. We're not forced, but by our spirit we choose. So to repent means that I will confess, first of all, And I will admit to the Lord, if necessary, that I love this sin, but I know it's wrong. I know it grieves his heart. Would he please put hatred in my heart toward that sin? Would he release me from that bondage? And as I pray through that prayer, I come to repentance. Now, to repent means I turn and I go another direction. I don't continue in the same old, same old. It is a choice that I make in my spirit to determine whether or not I will repent for my sin. Now, we have made very little of this in today's church Everybody is loved. Come on in. God's love is unconditional. No, it's not. Are you crazy? God's love is not. If God's love were unconditional, we would be universalists, and everybody would go to heaven, and there would be no hell. There is a heaven, and there is a hell, and I am not a universalist. And so I have to stand by faith that my sin will take me to hell. And I now stand by faith that Jesus at the cross with his blood has the power to break that sin in my life and release me and set me free. So the first step, if you want to be a real Christian, is to confess your sin, all of your sin, to make restitution or to repent to those you have wronged and admit that you were wrong. Oh, oh, pastor, I can't do that. It would would shame me. Yes, that's what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross. Do you think those are just pretty words? No, he means take up your cross and go to Golgotha and die. You've got to put that old man to death. And you do that by confession and honest repentance. So there should be absolutely no known sin in your heart. You should be washed and made clean. Now, John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance. 
But before he would baptize someone, he wanted to see some evidence that they had changed their behavior. He did not believe in dunking people just for fun. He believed that when you went under that dirty Jordan River, you came up out of it, touched by the hand of God, with your sins washed away and clean before God. His job was to prepare people to receive the Messiah. The first step is honest confession and honest repentance with no sentimentality. This is not just what you think you'd like to do. This is hardcore. This is going down there. Number two, to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Let, it, let me read it for you. Peter said, this is Acts, the second chapter, verse 38, you must repent and every one of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the removal of sins. In other words, Peter is saying, you must believe in Jesus as the Messiah. You must come to an absolute conviction in your heart that you are dealing with Messiah, with Jesus that he is real. That happens as you read the scriptures, as you listen to godly preaching, not compromised preaching, not feel-good, tickle-your-ears preaching, but straight up, this is the way, walk ye in it, with no compromise, with darkness, not legalism, freedom in Jesus. And as you come to that place of absolute belief in Jesus, and just a quick review, the word to believe in the Greek does not mean an intellectual assent. It is that, but it's much more than that. When I believe, I am attached to we become one together. So if you're going to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, it means you must become attached. You must know he is the Christ. And if you do your job, as you cry out in confession and repentance, he will begin to meet you by the power of the Holy Spirit and as you read the word, you will see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, epistles, prophecy, and revelation, you will see who Jesus is. And you will fall in love with him, for he is everything. So you will believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And number three, and this will be controversial for some of you. 
Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the removal of sins. To be baptized by immersion, not by sprinkling. If you were baptized by sprinkling, you need to be baptized for real. If you just had your forehead moistened with the hands of the pastor, you're not baptized. This is an adult baptism, usually the age of 12 or over, where you have made an absolute decision to repent of all of your sin. You have been washed in the blood of Jesus, and you choose to be baptized. Now, Don't mistake my ordering of these four things that I'm going to share with you as necessarily being in chronological order. I know the first one is always confession of your sin and repentance. But it's also a belief in Jesus that will begin to prompt you to confess your sin. So these these are separate items not to be mixed together in a in a blender they're to be kept separate but not legalistically in order let the holy spirit lead you as he chooses so first is confess and repent two is to believe in jesus as your savior and as your lord and believe me as you deal with your sin you will be overwhelmed with the desperate need for a Savior who can wash you and make you clean. Now, I've heard people say, nothing happens at baptism. If you believe that nothing happens at baptism, you've never truly repented of all of your sin. Nothing can happen at baptism except a formalized event unless you are clean before God by confession and repentance and restitution. But if you have gone through that step and your heart is now clinging to Jesus Christ and you are baptized, in your spirit you will feel so utterly clean. There will be great rejoicing because in your heart and in your life, you know you're free. You've been washed in the blood. And now you stand clean before God. But how are you going to stay clean? I remember as clearly as if it happened yesterday, the day of my baptism. I wasn't quite 12. My father thought I was yet too young. So my mother and father had quite a discussion about whether Raymond should be baptized. And they finally came into agreement through prayer that I knew what it was and I was ready. And I was baptized in the water. But the next day, I got in a fight with my brother. And I was brokenhearted because I knew I'd not been loyal to my Savior. And then I got angry at my dad. 
when he punished me for the fight with my brother. And rage filled my heart. And things began to add up. I knew I had not been made pure yet. My past sins were all forgiven. I was justified by faith in Jesus. But I had not yet been given the purity. And I had not yet been given the power. Now this is where number four comes. Listen to this. Peter said you must repent. And every one of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the removal of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because the promise is for you and for your children and for all the ones at a distance, as many as the Lord our God may call. Now let's be very clear. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for two reasons, two purposes. One, to purify us, to sanctify us, to make us righteous. In reality, there is no place in Scripture that imputed righteousness is taught. It is always imparted righteousness. It is righteousness that comes to us as a free gift from God as we are baptized in his Holy Spirit. Now it's of note that many times in the scripture the is absent. It does not say Oh, it says this in your NIV, but it does not say in the Greek, the Holy Spirit. It says, small h, holy, capital, small, um, h for holy, capital H, for or capital S for spirit. So it's, being baptized, adjective, holy, spirit. Holy is a descriptor of spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, that it doesn't say happy spirit or loving spirit. It says holy spirit. Jesus sent to us the Holy Spirit for two purposes. To bring purity into our lives. And secondly, to bring power for the work of the gospel. Now, some denominations want to stress strongly the power. You remember John Wimber and power evangelism. The power. It's all about the power. 
others in other traditions want to talk about purity, holiness. Wesley was one of those. But the Bible doesn't say one against the other. The Bible identifies both holiness and purity. We need both. Power comes with purity. But if we try to separate those out, we lose everything. And so if you look at John Wimber's ministry and the church that he was very much a part of, today they don't talk much about in the Vineyard Fellowship being baptized in the Spirit. It's now a part of their culture. It's been thrown in the blender and and mixed together with everything else. But we have to separate out these four parts and recognize that they don't mix one with the other, that they are individual experiences. It is total confession of sin and repentance. It is total believing in Jesus, both as my Lord and my Savior. It is a separate experience in time and space, to be baptized, to be plunged beneath the water, baptizo, and we just transliterate it, baptized. But what does it actually mean? It means to be put under water, to be totally soaked. It means to be inundated with No one who has been baptized has any question about when it happened or how it happened. You remember walking into that pool, the pastor hopefully putting a washcloth over your nose so he didn't drown you, and putting you under that water. And you were told, out of the sixth chapter of Romans, this is the symbol of dying to self and being lifted up out of the water as a new person. Lifted up out of the water as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now likewise, if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are totally submerged into Jesus. You are in Jesus, and he is in you. The Holy Spirit comes and brings that oneness and that that purity and that power. So what has happened? I talk with people and I ask them, have you been baptized in the Spirit? And they'll usually, or sometimes, I'll find a person who's been baptized in the Spirit. And they'll begin to tell me about the time when they were baptized in the Spirit. And they will tell me about the continued manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their life. But part of what will begin to happen in that person's life 
is there is a diminishing of Holy Spirit presence. As they make decisions and grieve the Holy Spirit by their choices and by their actions, as they do not remain without sin but begin to move into places they should not go and do things they should not do, the Holy Spirit begins to withdraw from them. And so today we have the church filled with people who've had some kind of an encounter with the Holy Spirit, but there's no purity and there's no power. Those two have to go hand in hand together. Otherwise, without the purity, there will be a constant diminishing of the power. They have to go together. Now, the cry of my heart is that I could have the whole gospel of Jesus. I'm shy of using the word because it's been so abused, but I want the primitive gospel of Jesus. I want the gospel that's spoken of in the book of Acts. I want the gospel that has power to heal the sick and raise the dead. I want the power of the gospel that brings great joy to a city like Philip did with the city of Sychar in Samaria, where the whole city was filled with joy because of the wonderful miracles that were being done. Signs and wonders should follow the teaching of the gospel if that person has been anointed in power and purity in the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's not your current experience, then you may have to begin back at the beginning and may enter into a serious time of confession of sin and repentance. Checking again, do I truly follow Jesus? Am I sold out to follow Jesus? Have I been baptized in the water? Has my sin been washed away? And do I truly want the baptism of purity and power in the Holy Spirit? Now, if you say yes to this, You know the steps you need to take. And if you've taken those steps and have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, go to Luke, the 11th chapter. Read it very carefully. It says to knock and seek and ask. It says that he who asks for the Spirit will be given the Spirit. But now let me tell you something very difficult in just the last minute. A person who was called to confess and repent of their sin, to believe in Jesus, to be baptized with water, but who was not then also baptized in the Holy Spirit and has gone many years without the baptism of the Spirit, it's going to be much more difficult for that person to receive the true baptism of the Holy Spirit because you've lived so long in your own strength and your own struggle and your own power. And now you have to break through that if you want to truly be used by Jesus. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, and you know that Pilgrim's Progress, the very essence of it, we are on a journey, we are on a path. We have not arrived until we get to the Jordan and cross over. 
go to our website, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online, and please, I haven't heard from any of you this week, and I need to hear from you. So go to nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you'll also find the last week's of messages on the Holy Spirit. I pray that God has met you today. Almighty Jesus, thank you for what you're doing. I pray that you will bring deep conviction by your Holy Spirit to every person listening, and if they have skipped any of these four steps, I ask, Lord, that you would turn them back now, that you would call them to walk carefully through these. And Lord, for that person who has not yet received the anointing power, the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray today your Holy Spirit anointing and baptism upon them. I pray, Lord, that you will totally engulf them right now by faith, that their hearts will be met by your power. I pray that every listener will come into this walk of purity and power, in what it truly means to be a Christian. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.